0: in the intern speak when we want to br- blame them for the summer slump. So thanks guys, you know, right? And um, so yeah, Lexi and I were in Los Angeles for our 15th wedding anniversary. I was doing a wedding. The reception was in the Bel Air Country Club and that was a little strange for us. Um, but I, I hope you guys, I, I listen to the sermons. I know you were in good hands. Um, June 20th or so is going to be, um, Lexi and I have been here for four years. And so four years ago, um, in a couple of months. Adam, the guy who spoke two years ago, or two weeks ago, sorry, and I were sitting in a Vietnamese restaurant um, eating noodles, talking about what we were going to do next. He was getting kicked out of um, Edinburgh. I was getting kicked out of the Methodist church. I'm just kidding. I was getting ready to leave uh, Lynn Haven, and um, he had just come to the idea that he was going to plan a church in Boston because it was just the toughest place in America he could think of and he's a bit of a hard charger and so we talked about that for a while and then we talked about me and he was like you know what are you going to do and i was like well i have a narrowed down i'm either going to do a phd in theology so that i can be a pastor in a city that is both academic and secular so that i can try to build a church and live out and preach out a real how to be christian in the midst of all those assumptions and in the midst of all those things and I said, the other is I'm interviewing, I'm kind of in candidacy process with a church that's thinking about inviting me to do that without a PhD or further training. Um, they're nuts. They're going to realize it at some point and not hire me. And so, so I'm probably going to do that. But, but I am really thinking about that. That was the high point in their eight-month interview process. So um, they were very thorough and still look, you know, so you might as well hire somebody in a month. So um, anyhow, there was this point in the conversation where I, I, I brought out this book, and this is my my pre-PhD senior pastor book where I made notes and notes and notes about like secular thought structures and how the structures of society cause us to believe certain things even though explicit arguments aren't made, media systems and how they function and what what ways of talking about theology are most helpful and what are the, the biggest questions secular people have and in what ways can you, we create answers for that and all those kinds of things and um, there's there's one point where Adam said... He's like, you know, like, I know that's like your PhD book, but he's like, what you're writing down is your theology of how to bleed the church in a secular city. And he said, he said, if you go to Duke, it's gonna be five years before you get a PhD. You're gonna use all your 30s to do that. It sounds like you ought to just do what's in your heart to do. You ought to just go do it. And um, you know, sometimes you have that moment with friends It's funny, Adam and I don't even know each other all that well, right? He's a friend. I've supported him He's supported me, but he's just like, you know, and sometimes somebody will have to say that to you They have to say, listen There's something in your heart to do. There's something that God has put in front of you to do And you need to just do it And one of the reasons that that ends up being important for a lot of us is because um, That's really not how we generally function Um, If, because the way I function is, I function tactically. I, I look at all of my resources. I look at all of the possible situations I could be in, all the variables, all the knowns and the unknowns, and then I create a methodology by which I will succeed. That's how I live my life. That's how most of you live your life. Some of you are free spirits and I hope you married well. You know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Living on vacuous charm is fine. I'm just, I'm just that's a joke, sorry. That was probably too close. Too snarky. Too snarky. Sorry. Um, anyhow, but but in our culture, there's this very strong sense of management and therapy. There's the way we manage our internal psychological lives, how we are therapists for ourselves. And then there's the, us managing our lives, taking our resources and tactically creating methodologies by which we will succeed. And the, the, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is In and of itself, it can be perfectly fine. In fact, all of us have to do that. But there is a point at which it becomes idolatry, and there's a point at which it is not at all what it means to follow God. There's a point at which you have to listen to God saying the explicit statement that's in Zechariah 4, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's probably the most famous verse in the book of Zechariah. And um, we have to get through our heads the idea that um, God does not mainly accomplish things merely by how good a tactician we are, but he accomplished things by his spirit. And so in theory, that could be an enormously helpful thing to be like, oh, God accomplishes things by his spirit. That's a very simple sentence. There's no and in it. It's not a tripartite sentence. It's just very simple. It's like God accomplishes things by his spirit. It's also entirely vague, Right completely vague because by his spirit could mean anything, right? Yeah. Um, so what I want to do this morning is spend a few minutes talking about what by my spirit means in this context and in the general context with humans, and then how do you respond to that? Once you realize that's true, how do you respond to it? When you ask the question sorry, by my spirit there's essentially two ways that you can take that. You can say, it's by my spirit. That is, it's not by human power, but by God's power, right? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Or you could say, it's not by God's power, but it's by his spirit. That is, there's two different ways God could work. One is by power, one is by spirit, and he does it by spirit rather than by power, okay? Now, generally speaking, the first one is, is hopefully obvious, but isn't always. Because the verse says, right, in verse 6 there, it says, not by might, not by power. Now, there's no subject reference there, is it? Is there? There's no, like, not by your power or my. He doesn't say who he's referring to. He just says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Which leaves us kind of in the linguistic lurch, right? Do you like that alliteration? Is that funny at all? Okay. Um, th- because we're like, well, what does that, what does that mean, right? So, he— You have to know a little context, because once you know the context, it's dead obvious. God comes in, and this is—it says in that verse, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is in the line of David. He's in the line of kings. And so he's not king, because they're still under Persia, but he's the governor. He's the executive leader. He's the guy who's supposed to get it done. And they came back to build a wall and to build a temple, mainly to build a temple. Some years back, they started to build a temple, they finished the foundation, everybody celebrated, aren't we awesome? And then they essentially got sued, accused of treason, and a bunch of people said that they were going to come and kill them with their bare hands and stuff. And so they got scared and stopped. And some time had passed by where they hadn't done anything. Haggai is the, is the prophet that talks at the same time as, as Zechariah. Zechariah is probably younger. Haggai's probably in his 80s because it's possible people think that he actually saw the first temple before it was destroyed. So he's this old guy. Haggai's like three pages. He's like, "Look, it's not time for you to be doing nothing. It's time for you to work. God says "I'm going to be with you. So let's build this temple." right? And then that's it. That's the end. That's all I just summarized Haggai for you. You're welcome) <laughs> Zechariah is much longer. There's visions and like apocalyptic and blah, blah, blah. And, but in it, it's the same basic message. It's this message that God is doing things by His Spirit. The point of the passage is, to Zerubbabel, is build the temple. Except he says it a little nicer than that. Right? If you, if you look in the passage, if you have a Bible and you're open of, to chapter 4, if not, um, it's on page 1475. But, it, but he says this listen. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, right? That's a general statement. That's true for all people. And then then it gets more specific for Zerubbabel. What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. The word of the Lord came to me, meaning to Zechariah, to tell Zerubbabel, the hand of Zerubbabel Hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Gosh, man, I wish I could spend a couple hours at There's a lot in that little bit. But think about what what he's saying. He's saying, you laid the foundation, then you quit. But you laid the foundation. And he said, you are the one who's going to finish it. It's not going to be your sons. It's not going to happen 50 years from now. It's going to happen now. You are going to get up off your behind, and you are going to build that temple. I don't care how scared you are, and I don't care how unsuccessful you're going to be. Because part of the reason why people didn't finish the temple was because in Haggai, when they celebrate the building of the foundation, it says that other people wept, and not for joy. They wept for discouragement. You know why? Because you can usually tell by the time they pour the concrete how nice the house is going to be. And Solomon's temple, the one that got destroyed, was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Just about everything was made out of gold, imported woods. I mean, it was, it was hot. And this temple was clearly not going to be. It was cobbled together rocks. It was relatively poor craftsmanship. They didn't—this was not the artistic apex of Jewish culture in any sense of the word. And by the time they had the foundation done, it was—people were looking at it, and some people were like, yeah, we finished it! That was everybody who was young. It didn't remember what it used to be like. But there were some old people. There were some people in their 80s that were little kids when they went into exile, and they remember walking through the city of Jerusalem and seeing this great golden temple, and it burned into their mind as little kids, and they look at this, and they wept, because they're like, we're back, but it's not going to be like it was. We're going to be—we're going to be lesser children of greater sires. We're going to live in the decline of our people. That's a terrible feeling. Um, I think for the last 10 years, I know a majority of Americans have said, my life is going to be worse than my parents. It's a terrible way to think and feel, even if tactically you think it might be true. It's very depressing. And so you see, it wasn't just fear that Zerubbabel and company were facing. It was also just, just discouragement at failure because they saw success as doing as well as the people before us. Right? And so God comes into that picture and he says, listen, you're right. That's one thing I love about the Bible. There's just not a lot of sentimentality. I'm not a very sentimental person. If you are, that's great. I'm just not. And so in the Bible, I just love how God isn't very foofy. Like, there's places where he's, where he's very feely. He's like, when Jesus is like, you know, Jerusalem, I wish I could gather you like a hen gathers its chicks and the little fluffy stuff there. And it's, I mean, that's really—that's that's nice that doesn't speak to me as much as when God's like, you know, you're right. You're probably going to die. You know? Like my favorite Narnia character is Puddle Glum. Well, we're probably all going to die, but we better do it anyway. You know? And so when, when God's like, he says, look, I know everything that's happened. It's a mountain, right? I mean, he's not talking about a literal mountain. He's not saying I'm going to come and destroy Mount Zion and then in the, when I'm, this valley I make, you can build a temple. What he's saying is the obstructions to building the temple are like a mountain. You're totally Right? You're totally right, but what are they before you? I'm gonna make them into a plane. It's gonna be easy walking. I'm gonna gonna do it, because you can't do it, right? And so in that sense, as you go through—and this, you can see this theme all through the Bible. I'm actually not going to read all these verses for you. But as you work through the Bible over and over and over again, God is saying, don't trust in things. Don't trust in tactics. Don't trust in power. Don't trust in being shrewd. In fact, there's lots of examples in the Bible of people trusting in their physical strength, right? People who trust in horses and chariots. But we'll trust in the name of the Lord, meaning I've got power, so I'm going to trust in that. But just as much are people who trust in their shrewdness— Right? There's a place in Isaiah where he says that they trusted in Egypt. What's, what does—you trusted in Egypt? What does that mean? Like, it, it means that they were being attacked from the north, and they thought if they made a treaty to get soldiers and mercenaries from the great empire to the south, they could be saved if they were politically shrewd enough. That is, if they were thinkers. Right? You hear that, Madison? Right? We don't tend to be like, well, right, well I could bench press, blah, blah, blah. So I'll be—that's not how we normally think, Right? People in Madison normally think, I got my degree, and I got a list, and I'm going to play this angle, and I'm doing that, and I'm— Either way, scriptures over and over again, God is saying, no, trust me. I will accomplish it by my spirit. That is, in that case, as opposed to human strength. As opposed to human action, it will be accomplished by God's action. Think about this verse in verse 6 and 9. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, Almighty Mountain? Right before you, before Zerubbabel, you become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of "God bless it! God bless it!" The English Standard Version translates that shouting, "Grace to it, grace to it," which is so much clearer. Right? Um, what do those phrases mean? How, and what what does the Hebrew probably say that you could translate that either way? Right. You see, sometimes I think we're not clear on what we mean by the word bless. We say bless as an evaluative word, right? Well, how was, the, how was the sermon? It was a blessing, sister. It's a blessing. Meaning, I approve of it. It was helpful or something. Right? But what does the word blessing actually mean, Right? something that is blessed is something that is better than you tactically could have expected. Right? Like, if a a farmer is blessed, he sowed his seeds, he expected a crop of A, and instead he got A plus F. Right? I mean, it's more—it's more—it's better. Like, you—you you try to work it all out. You try to figure out how it could work. You have this idea of what might happen. Something else happens, and it is an increase on that. That is, it's a happy outcome. I mean, the word blessed just means happy, right? It's a—it's a happied outcome. But it always bears the idea of providence. That is, that it was—it was made a happier outcome by God. I'm blessed. I'm doing better than I was tactically expected. And the, the reason for that is because I believe God has acted on my behalf. Does that make sense? That's blessing, right? What does grace mean? Grace is the opposite of merit, right? Grace is favorability. If something does, does somebody does something for you out of favor, they just, they just want to, there's no reason they're morally obligated to do it. They do it simply because they want to, right? To do it is good, but to not do it isn't wrong right? That's grace. And so when Zerubbabel picks up a stone and carries it out to put it in a place, and remember, it's not the cornerstone, right? It's the capstone, meaning it's the last stone. We're done. What's the response of people to we're done? Is it, we did it! We're awesome! No, it's grace to it. The stone, which is part of the temple, grace to it. That is, it's only by the favor of God that we accomplish this. That is, grace. It's a blessing, right? The idea is, is that when Zerubbabel gets past his mountain because God is going to lay it down and he builds the temple, it looks totally ordinary, right? But when it finally finishes, people won't say we're awesome. They will at that point recognize it's God that's awesome. But a few verses later, God says, but the people will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand right? The plumb line, that's the measuring line. That's the line that you, you use to put up the walls, right? That is, when somebody starts doing something again, people will already start to be happy. They will realize that there is somebody who has some guts and is willing to put themselves on the line to accomplish something morally and spiritually beautiful. They won't necessarily know it's by divine action yet, but they'll know something is happening, But by the time you lay the capstone, they will yell, "God bless it!" I don't know how, but somehow God was behind this. It's by God's power, not our power. The other way to take it, though, is the whole question of: Is it by God's power or by spirit? Because you could say, literally, if you want to make a contrast, you ought to say, "It's not by your power, Zerubbabel; it's by my power." And there are places in the Bible where God does say it that way. So why say it this way? Why say not by might or by power, meaning your might or power, human person? but by my spirit. Why not just use power? And part of the reason for that— Is that point that bad? I'm just just kidding. I'm just kidding. You don't have to take it on. I'm just joking. Um, Gives people who are bored something to listen to. Um, What's the— Where? Are we here? Okay, good. Um, (laughs) Why say spirit? And part of the reason for this is that because it doesn't look like power. I mean, what if I told you— I said, listen— you believe in God, and if you follow God, you are going to experience God's power. You are going to experience it. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be powerful, and you're going to walk out of here, and it's going to be like, boom! And what's, what would you do? You walk out of here, and you're waiting for the boom, and you come back next week, and what would you tell me? Where's the stinking boom? Right? That's what, that's what you would say, right? Because that's what life is really like. That it's—it's— it's, it's power in that the mountain's going to be a plane, right? Zerubbabel is going to get from A to B. But God doesn't say you're not going to get an arm lopped off while you're doing it. He doesn't say you're not going to put in the last stone one-handed, or one-eyed, or having lost three of your children, or lost everything that you owned and, and, and that it impoverished you. He doesn't make any promises like that. All he says is, I'm with you. Go build it. It's going to work. You're going to put the capstone on and people are going to cheer, God is with us. That's all I'm promising. And for somebody who believes, that's enough. I mean, haven't you made decisions in your life where you're tallying up all the stuff? But how you make the decision really comes down to a single either or. You know? I mean, I remember, I remember when I was, when I was you know, younger and thinking about getting married and thinking of all the pros and cons, you know, you have your like, spouse list, right? And I remember thinking, you know, if she just stays with me, if she just stays with me and can accept me for what I am, which is not impressive, right? That would be awesome. And if I just believe she'll stay with me, I, I'll marry her. You know what I mean? Like, that I'm sure for Lexi, was like, if he would just not be like this, then, <laughs> you know. But there are a lot of decisions where you can say a lot of things tactically, but it ultimately comes down to a single either or. If God says— Here's what I put in your heart and in front of you to do. If you stick with this, you will make it. I make no other promises. You see, faith is the phenomenon of the heart in which the heart says, okay. And if you'll help me keep believing, okay. Even if your list of liabilities has 27 and the other side only has three. You can't, you just, you just can't see it happening. That's the thing about it. And that's, I think that's why God says it's by his spirit. Remember in John 3, Jesus says, um, he's talking to Nicodemus, he's like, it's kind of like the wind. The Holy Spirit, the way he regenerates and changes the heart, it's kind of like the wind. It blows around. You can see its effects, but you can't grab it. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. You can't control it. You can't do anything with it. It it, just—but it's there. It does what it does. It creates its effects. It does what it's there to do, but you can't—you can't get at it. It's the opposite of magic. A power that you can somehow control. It's a power that you cannot control. And think about this. If one of the most fundamental idolatries of every human heart is that we are—we're tactician idols. We're controllers. We want to—we want to know where we're going. We want to know if we're going to get there. We want to control. We want to control. We want to control. Doesn't it make sense that God wouldn't do things through outright power? That we would be like, well, can I control that, and how can I— that he would do things through this, like slips through your fingers like sand. You don't really know where it's happening. You don't really know how it's happening. It looks like it's happening, but it doesn't look like it's happening. It's very confusing. Either you do the right thing for the wrong reason or you don't. It's as simple as that, and you wait till somebody lays the capstone, and then you realize that God was in it all along. Don't you see that's the perfect mechanism for the kind of creatures we actually are? If we are the kind of idolatrous control addicts that the Bible says we are, if we choose ourselves again and again and again, if we want God to work for us, not us to live for him, if we, if we are always trying to control our futures, God working for the good of our futures in a way that looks like he isn't is actually the greatest possible thing to create beings of faith and trust And to create morally strong beings Because moral strength only comes from Choosing that over your tactical options Right? If if tactically You want to do A And morally A is good What are you going to do? A, it's not a character issue Right? There's no character choice there You just do A But when your tactical side says If I want to get there, I got to do A And when Trusting in Jesus, you know God says, B. Now that is a moral problem, and that is a question and builder of, and definer of, and revealer of who we really are. And so God, to change us, and transform us, and develop us, and teach us, has to create piles of moments in our life where A and B are not the same direction. Whenever they're the same direction, we are not developing as people. We're not changing. We're not being transformed. We're not exhibiting faith. There's no faith. It's not that we're being unfaithful. It's just faith isn't required. It's only when they go in opposite directions where faith becomes the issue. And if what the Bible says all the way through, that God is trying to create a race of creatures that trust him. That's what the Bible says from beginning to end. When the Son of Man returns, will he find— What's the only thing that he will be— When the Son of Man returns, will he find— Faith on the earth. That's what he was after. Will will the creatures that I created to belong to me and be in a relationship which requires trust, will they be in a state of trust? That's all they need. Everything else God is going to provide for you in eternity. (laughs) The only thing he's creating in you now is faith. Well, I mean, there's some other things related to that, but that's the heart of it. That is the white hot center. Faith and trust in God. And so doesn't, I mean— doesn't it make some sense that every day, every hour, over and over, you're gonna have to face doubt, struggles, trials, your your tactical desire, and the moral dictate of the living God are gonna go in opposite directions. You're gonna have to choose this one, and you're gonna have to trust yourself to blessing. Think about this. If you were gonna write the top ten rules for creation, like God was like, here's a pen. You write the top ten. For how many of us would rest be in the top ten? Would it make yours? Wouldn't it make mine? Well, I sleep a lot. But most people, it wouldn't make it. What is the fundamental faith question with the Sabbath? One day a week, at least, you can't work. Well, not at least. You're supposed to work six days a week, and you're not supposed to work the seventh day. You're supposed to be industrious six days, and then you're not supposed to be for one day. What is the fundamental faith question about rest? In an age in which competition is so enormously fierce, and in an age where many of us make our living in eking out a tiny, infinitesimal percentage of increased efficiency, so that most of the businesses we work for survive on a less than 5% profit, right? I mean, how many of us work for any kind of company, corporation, any entity that could drop 10% and survive? Or one-seventh and make it? Very few. If you do, you're in an industry that's just started, and that profit margin will slowly decline until it's zero. That's how economics works. Or until you innovate again. And yet God looks at us and says, you leave one-seventh on the table. you're a Christian, you're going to leave one-seventh of your time on the table. You're going to let people who will work seven days a week, you're going let to th- let them work one-seventh more than you. And you're going to have to trust that rest is so designed into your being as a human that resting is actually in coherence with reality, and you will be blessed and better off because you obeyed. And you're going to have to believe that through God's working of his spirit and the dictates of his providential rule that he will get us through even though we leave one-seventh on the table. It's just a flat challenge to your faith, to your trust. Do you believe God is there? If you don't believe God is there, you'll probably believe you've got to work all the time. And you won't ever rest. You'll find a way to eke work into most days. I have a really hard time with this. Right? Same thing with money. Like, the old, what's the Old Testament giving standard? It's 10%, right? That's a, I mean, who's going to do that? How do you keep up with the neighbors when you drop 10% right off the top? You can't do that. Unless you commit tax fraud. Right? It's like an, it's an enormous handicap right out of the gates. And yet, tactics, Truth you pick. That's what faith is, right? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Not just his power, not our power, but his means and ways which are not acceptable to us because—and here's why it's not acceptable to us. You know why it's not acceptable to us? You know this is important because I'm on the carpet now. <laughs> I'm connecting with you because I'm closer. Do you feel the psychological bond? I can't even think of the point now. No. Um, <laughs> here's why we have a problem with the spirit thing. The reason is because you cannot figure in that kind of action of God into your tactical equation. That's why you hate it. That's why I hate it. Right? I'm figuring out my tactics. I get to the point where I want to figure in God. Right? I want to do the God calculus, fit that into the overall equation so I can make my life work. And, but then then it turns out I call God and be like, God, I want to figure it in my equation. And he's like, ah, right? Or, mm. and he just, he won't, he just won't submit to that. And it's infuriating. He's like, you're just going to have to trust me and see. Because he's really not interested in having me be his friend for eternity and part of his eternal bride Um. He—the he, reason he loves me isn't because I'm a great tactician. He doesn't love me because of my faith either, but what he wants from me is faith. That's what he wants from you. He's not—it's not actually better tactics. Right? There's this verse that's always kind of haunted me on this. I'm not going to have time for this. Sorry. This is the eight visions that Zechariah had, and there's a brilliant point that comes from that. Listen to the website if you want to hear this one. Um, that's, you hear people quote this psalm from time to time, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Now that's clearly an emphasis on the same idea, right? But this second sentence is the one that I think about more. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Right? Have you ever heard anybody say, at some point you just gotta sleep like a Christian? Right, At some point you need to say I can't control any of this I'm going to bed right? I remember um, one of the things Lexi, Lexi's always amazed at, at how I can sleep And it's probably because I have narcolepsy I'm going in for a sleep study next month But I just don't The only time I can't sleep is before hunting trip That's the only time I can't sleep I'm too, too excited um, The day I found out my dad was killed I went to bed at my normal time Slept all night I can't control any of these things I'm this tiny, piddly human. I can't control whether or not the church fires me someday. I can't control whether or not the sermon is any good. I can do my job. I can try to be faithful. I can work with the hours that I have. And then I need to go to bed and sleep like a Christian. I need to go home and play with my son. I need to go home and pull weeds out of my garden because I'm supposed to be resting, not working. And that is a lost art to us. And it's because we we don't, worship Jesus. We worship our tactics. We Christians. Right? So then what do we do? Right? What are we going to do about this? Um, How do you act? Like, if God does things by his power, and if God brings them about through the means of his spirit, then how do we respond to that? I mean, what do you do? Do you just do nothing? Right? I mean— I mean, do you just like a hot tub boat? Like, you just get in the hot tub and you just ride the boat, right? Huh. That's a different kind of boating. I think that was invented in Seattle, and I don't think the water's ever warm enough there or something. I don't know. But, um, that's the $42,000 version. This is the redneck version. (laughs) Which is why the world needs redneck. There's a battery, right? Pumping water through a bilge pump, through a heat coil back into the bottom under these guys' legs. That's great. Anyway, just in case. I just don't want you to spend your money on something you don't need. Um, So how do you then participate with—how do you—how do you walk with the God who does things by a spirit who doesn't tell you everything he's doing beforehand? Right? How do you follow someone who doesn't set clear leadership, and how do you trust someone when you don't know where they're going? Right? And the answer to that is is that God's spirit fills, inhabits, strengthens, add whatever verb works, trust and obedience. Trust and obedience, both of which are faith. Trust is an internal recognition that you need to believe God and have faith. Obedience is a practical action in line with actually having faith. Right? The point in both the books of Haggai and Zechariah is not sit there and wait— and I will do everything. Now, there's actually a couple places in the Bible where God does say exactly that. Usually in battles. There's a battle that cannot be won. The army—God's army shows up, and he goes, you guys aren't going to be fighting today. He wipes out the other army through some crazy means, and he goes, now just cheer or something, you know, and that's it. You just—but in both Haggai and Zechariah, that's not his point. His point is, you actually know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. There's no—you didn't stop working— because you didn't know what I wanted. Right? Is that right? They didn't stop working because they, they, were, they were unclear about what God wanted. I mean, think about this. God wants us to love people. Do we really not know what we're supposed to be doing? Like, listen, we can have long disputations about policy and political methodology and so on, but like, frankly, individually and as a church, do we really not have any idea what to do? <laughs> it's just—that's just, that's not possible. He goes to Zerubbabel, he's like, listen— you know what you're supposed to do, and you're supposed to be building this temple. You stop because you're terrified and you're discouraged. I'm with you. Now build the temple, right? Listen, I would wager you know exactly what you're supposed to do. You just don't want to rebuild your relationship with your spouse. You don't want to submit to and serve your crappy boss. You don't want to suffer well with the disease that you have. You don't—you don't want to. You don't, you don't want to go through the dealing with like, you're like. look, I have this problem. You don't want to be honest about it and just let people in, knowing that you may never change. Like, my wife and I, it's 15 years now, we're finally at the point where we're like, okay, so I think acceptance is the key in marriage. <laughs> the, part of the premise of God doing things by his spirit is that that you know, you often really know a lot more than you think you do or are willing to say you do. Um, You know, I, some of you know, I stole this from Vince Burke when he was here last year. But if God, I was at a a dinner party last night where one of the guys was, did some stuff in finance and he said, we talk about trillions of dollars now. I'm in finance and I still have no stinking idea what that means. It's just such an astronomical number. Do you think that the, that the data points in God's plan for all of creation is less complicated than a trillion data points, right? I'm guessing it's significantly more, and so do we really think that we, God should be explaining to us day in and day out what he's doing? What Vince Burke said last year when he was here, he said, listen, the only way you can get involved personally and seamlessly in an infinitely complex plan is if you do what the person in charge tells you to, right? Have you ever tried to run any kind of large operation? I mean, some of us have never been bosses, or let anything, but you start leading things you get more than like four people involved and you just can't explain everything and the dynamics of exactly why you're doing everything. You just have to be, listen, I need you to stand at that door and when somebody walks towards it, I need you to open it for them and smile. Well, why? Right? Can you just do that? Right? And and the whole thing goes, if everybody does their job, the whole thing goes seamlessly, but you can't Explain everything, and, and most of the time, you can't even if you had time Every piece isn't going to understand it They're just not coming from the perspective to no. know And the only way you can really be part Of what God is doing by his spirit In his providential work How he governs in ways we don't even see Is through obedience It's the only way you can be going in that direction and know it You're probably not going to get weekly emails I mean, everybody wants to have a weekly sit down Of life coaching with Jesus Like, I get that, okay You're not going to get that Okay. Are we agreed on that one? You're probably not going to get that. So maybe you can just do what he already told you to do, us to do, right? And we can go. Oh, maybe I can do that because his infinitely complex providential plan that we want to be part of, we can only be a part of it when we obey him. Same thing by his spirit. What do you think his spirit is going to bless? Right. Well, what he, what his spirit wants to, which is when we trust him and obey him. And disobedience and distrust just is, are always fundamentally going in the opposite direction of this. Um, what that means we have to get to is something that— so I didn't—I'm just going to coin this term, okay? There's probably a much simpler way to say this, but I just don't know it. Is we have to get to a point of dependent autonomy. Now, what I mean is this. There are some Christians and people— who believe in what I'll just call for today the mystical fallacy, which is the real goal is being so one with God, being one with God's spirit, being one with whatever, that it's like you are um, just, just animated, you know, just possessed in a good sense. Like it's just—there's it, a mind meld, and then you just—all you, you say is you're just in the, you just have to be in the state of yes— and God will speak to you, and then you just kind of do it, and that's all there is, and, and, and you just follow God. You just say yes. You just hear God all the time. And I am not against hearing from God, internally and subjectively. I'm not against that. But there is a kind of mystical fallacy that thinks that the kind of creature we are is one that is supposed to be mind-melded with God. I do not see that in the Bible. In fact, if you want to have a, a really short conversation, we should study all the passages in the New Testament that talk, to, talk about internal leadings from God. It's a real short conversation. Okay? Now, the other side is, you know, like, it's, it's sort of the secular fallacy. There's no God to listen to. There's no— What the Bible requires of us is, is both— A real dependence on God. But how are we really dependent on God? Do we have a a mystical union where we're mind-melded and we hear everything? No. God has been really clear. He's given us his written revelation. Right? He's given us the special revelation of creation and humanity, which would be confusing if he had not clarified its meaning with written revelation and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But when those four, the two generals and the two specific revelations are put together into a coherent whole, it is very clear what God wants from us. He wants us to be like Jesus. And he said a couple thousand pages worth on the subject. In addition to that, sometimes that is applied to us by the Holy Spirit through illumination, where we don't even know he's doing it, we just get something. Or through a kind of application of the divine inspiration where we go, oh, I think that means I should do this. Right? But there's dependence, simply, is we are responding to what the direction he's giving us. But at, the, at some point, what does God say to Zerubbabel? What's the leading? The leading is get to work. Right? That's the memo. Right? He opens the nine envelopes. He signs here, signs there, signs there, signs there, signs there. The guy finally gives it to him. He opens it up. There's one line build the temple. Then what he is supposed to do Is get his own behind up out of his seat Get his sword Get his hammer Get his buddies together Get the accountants and the whatever And figure out how they are going to build the temple That is, they're going to have to function autonomously You get up and you do it God has made you a smart, able, capable— God has given you resources. You're just supposed to use them. You don't have to be divinely led to host a small group. You do not have to be divinely led to be nicer at work. You don't have to be divinely led to do the dishes for your spouse or to listen better to your children or to— You don't. You just have to apply what God has explicitly said as you autonomously follow him because God has made us intentionally capable, dependent beings. And the fallacy that we don't need to be dependent is ridiculous. Just look at people who live independently where they they just don't believe in anything else but what they define from themselves. It's not creating great things in our culture, I would argue. But yet there's a certain servile dependence that creates people that are more neurotic, more dependent, less active. But we're meant to be this kind of dependent autonomy. We depend on God. We realize he functions by his spirit. Through obedience and trust, we get in line with his providential work and with the work of his spirit. And we, we go in that direction and we... Don't always trust our tactics, but we apply our tactical abilities to what the moral compulsion he's pointed us to is, right? We let him set the agenda, then we use our tactical abilities to get there, rather than the other place we want to be going through our idolatry. And when we do that, we start to lift things out the way— now, some people be like, okay, that's, that's just fancy preacher talk for something that's actually a contradiction. Dependent autonomy does not work. But <clears throat> it does work, and we believe in it already. Have you ever done like parrot pairs ballroom dancing. I kind of despise it, but Lexi and I did get, um, we got lessons, and so we felt obligated to use them. And so we went to this, like, dance thing, and it was just horrible. I mean, it was, it was horrible because this is one of those things that you either have to do it or you don't. You can't dabble, right? Have you ever been to one of those weddings and there's, like, one couple that's, like, like, prancing toes and everybody else is kind of, like, that, you know, like, high school, junior high? And And you kind of hate that person, but you realize that the butter knives they give you don't throw well, and so there's really nothing you can do about it. But that's because that's the way dancing is. There are very few mediocre dancers. I mean, there's a—I mean, there's some, but, like, it's either do it or you don't. And here's the thing with with pairs dancing. There is, apparently— Right? And. That person does exert leadership. Otherwise, you only just go in a square or a circle the whole night, right? Which is not all that much fun, unless somebody comes by with snow cones, right? But, (laughs) so somebody's got to exert leadership. The problem is, is that it's happening in real time. So the responding person has to respond to the leadership, but they also have to like autonomously almost already be going because— you just can't—so d- there was a study in the military, right, which is kind of funny, of, on reaction times. It was, if you see a bullet coming at you, how far away does it have to be for you to have the time to actually move, right? Because you can see tracer rounds, right? And the—so and, and the, how long does it take for a human being to see something coming at them, realize that it's coming at them, and then actually move, right? Like you'd think a tenth of a second, like a twentieth of a second. It's almost a full half second. Because you have to see it, you have to cognitively realize it's coming at you, you have to realize you have to get out of the way, you have to decide your course of action, where you're going to go, you have to tell your body to do it, and then your body has to actually do it. Turns out for most um, ammunition rounds, it's like 12 to 2,000 yards. Right? The good news is it's not the tracer round that hits you, it's the three after that. Right? So you you do have a second. But like in dancing, you just—like what if you're dancing with a partner and they have— It's a half a second reaction time every time you exert leadership. Of course, that's what happened when Lexi and I went dancing, (laughs) right? Because she had no idea how to be autonomous in those dances. I had no idea how to lead. It was kind of a disaster. (laughs) But when couples know how to dance, what's happening? The responding person, which is usually the woman, is she's functioning mostly autonomously, or you can't dance. Right, What the guy is doing is He's functioning autonomously That's why they can move together And then there's like a little Let's do this Or let's do that And then you can move In responsiveness to the leadership Because you're already Functioning autonomously It's like a dance We already believe it That's what your spiritual life Is like too It's, it's, it's a fusion of Total dependence And total autonomy Another example, that was the girl example. The guy example is um, tactical assaults. It's just, it's, just, it's just male dancing, right? It's just, church should be for men too, right? Like there's usually four to eight people in an assault team, right? And they all are bound by law of exactly what they're supposed to do right? They know exactly how they're supposed to formation, how the diamond works, who's where, who's calling out commands. All that is dictated. You're dependent on that. You don't have any choice. You have to respond to leadership. However, no room, hallway, hill are ever the same, right? So everybody on the team has to function autonomously because you're improv the whole way because it's never the same. And so they have to function between this, I'm obeying the rules, I'm following, I'm dependent, I'm doing what I'm dependent, and... I'm functioning as an autonomous member, and only when those two come together do you get either the beauty of dance or the success of assault. Sorry if that's not fun for you. So what do we do? What do we do? How do you build the temple? How do you get at it? How do you act in an autonomously dependent way? So let me give four quick examples. One is through accepting prayer and worship. That is not accepting that you have to pray and worship, but by exerting in prayer worship, that is accepting in nature. That is, why did we start out with a song that was like, God, you're super awesome, oh happy day? Why did we do that? Is it because that's how we all felt when we got in here? No, it's because we're tactitional idolaters, and we spent all week forgetting that was true, and so we had to come in here and remind ourselves. Now, it was still true. That's why we sang it to God, because it was worship. But what were we doing in ourselves? We weren't just expressing ourselves, were we? We were de-expressing we de- ourselves. We were dumping stuff and re-remembering what we spent all week forgetting. That's one of the reasons why prayer and worship is in the process of being forgotten in the American church and is much more important than almost any of us think it is. And I know it sounds like I'm saying that that's for psychological reasons, and it's partly because I'm saying it's for psychological reasons. Prayer and worship are both intrinsically fundamentally valuable and should be done, whether they have any effect on us at all. It's simply what God deserves— Here's the fun thing about God. He makes the right thing also the effective thing. He makes the thing we should do the thing that also benefits us the most. So he has made worship and prayer, what he deserves and what we must do, also something we desperately need. That is, the reorientation of the idolatrous tactician back to the person who is interested in following the one who is worthwhile by faith. Because what do we spend all week thinking? God should be nicer to us, and we're pretty awesome people, and we should follow ourselves. We spent all week relearning that. And so what do we have to do when we get here? We have to remember that we basically stink, and that Jesus is pretty darn awesome, and it's our delusional understanding of the world that helps us think that, and we need to just turn that whole thing around and go out and this time try to remember that at least until Tuesday. Right? The second is obeying the truth. You may think that the laws in the Bible and the stuff that the Bible or Jesus tells us to do are just there to make our lives miserable. Which is great. Um, One of the things that they function as that you just can't get around, at least if you you claim to be a Christian, is that they are the test of your sincerity. They are the B to your tactical A. Because— You and I have to be tacticians, right? Like, we have a life to live. There are variables. There are things we want to accomplish. We have to do things every day. We're all going to be tacticians, right? We're all going to be trying to accomplish things. So when does trying to accomplish something become wrong? Like, I tactically got dressed this morning and came over to church and did my job, right? When does doing that become wrong? Here's when—and it can become wrong at any point, but here's when you know it becomes wrong. When you run up against the commandment. When you run up against something God says And God says, that's not okay This isn't okay But your tactic line goes straight through that And when you decide to go straight through it Here's what that shows you Or should show us That's that's your game plan Your God is your tactics You believe in that your tactics will produce blessing for you. You believe that your tactics will lead you to happiness. You believe that your tactic, following your tactics, is what you were created to be, what you were meant to be, what you're going to do, and not what God has said. That's one of the reasons why the Bible had to be full of commandments when it was written to sinful people. We need those checks, desperately. Because how many times do we just decide to criticize ourselves? (laughs) Like, just walking around. You know, I think I might not have good motivation on that. That's, that's not most people's normal gear. That's over here somewhere. Like, I'm you not know like the old, the old Jettas. You had to, to get in reverse, you had to push it down, slide it over, and come back. That's like, that's how hard it is for us to get in that gear. The, God, am I doing something wrong? That's like the, you push it down, forward, over, down, back, in here, pushing a code, over there, and then down. And then the clutch is real touchy. Right? One of the ways in which you can say, what does it look like to to, obey—to walk with God, to be part of what He's doing by His Spirit? It's by this, by obeying Him. So don't tell me I don't understand dating today. Don't tell me that. Or don't invite me to lunch and ask me why, what I think about it. (laughs) Okay? Don't, don't, don't talk to me about this is what it takes in my business to get ahead. This is the, the nature of the possible. This is the blah, blah, blah. I understand the moral dilemma, and I understand you're torn by it. I, I find myself in those situations also. But listen, whether, we not, whether or not we obey the truth is the test of our real sincerity. And if you don't, then you should at least be honest about the level of sincerity of your faith. At least then you're being honest with God. Right? Okay, maybe you shouldn't say yes to that one, because that one's— a little touchy The third is accepting the ordinary If you look at what Zerubbabel supposed to do, right? He's supposed to get up every morning For as long as it takes Cut rocks, mortar them together Until he's built a building Right? Really glamorous Right? We talk sometimes about how moms Like stay-at-home moms sometimes feel like, the, like Their job is like over and over again and laborious Like, work is better? Like, this is one of the biggest crazies that has happened in our culture in the last 50 years. The idea that, like, it's somehow better to go to work. It's only better to go to work because we're more selfish, and work is better for that. Everything in our lives is repetitive. Everything in our lives is like that. Everything in our lives is ordinary, duty-based, role-based, systems-based. Everything. The only place where there is any actual liberty and freedom is in the home, because it's a dictatorship. At least there, you make the rules. J.K. Chesterton said once, I don't know why women like to go to work outside the home. It's at home that they get to be empress, and at work that they get to be a secretary. I'm not saying you should stay at home. It's just, re- it's just realizing how we think about these things and how odd those thoughts can be sometimes. In order for us to walk with the Spirit, if the Spirit—like, Spirit, think about this. What is the job the Spirit of God gave the Jewish people, right? It wasn't build a tower to the sun, right? Remember? The Tower of Babel, people are like, we're gonna do something, oh, we're gonna build a tower up to God. And like at one level you'd be like, God would be like, go get him, Tiger, like at a boy, right? I mean, like, there's part of you that feels like you'd be like, Yeah. Way to think big, right? I mean, isn't that like I should write some kind of leadership guru book about how awesome the Tower of Babel was, right? And I'll sell a million copies. And we can build a glass something center out there for my name or something, right? Like, that's what did God do? He like intentionally messed it up. So they couldn't do it. He's like—because remember, what does God say in, in chapter 10? He goes, they actually could do that. If they all work together, they could actually do that. They could build something that amazing. So I'm going to stop it. And so God frustrates it. Then he goes to some sheik shepherd guy—not sheik-like well-dressed, but sheik-like is in like a tribal leader. He might have dressed nice too. I just don't know. And he says, listen, here's what you're going to do, Abraham. What you're going to do is you're going to—you're going to have children— and you're going to be a people And you're going to trust me That's what you're going to do Later on, I'm gonna, there's going to be more So then later on, you get Moses Moses is like, here's what you're going to do You're going to worship God You're going to have children You're going to live in towns You're going to grow barley and sheep and stuff And you're going to live in shalom You're going to live in peace and justice with each other That's what you're going to do You're just going to do that for a millennia or two As long as it sort of takes for me to get done what I want to get done Right? That's the calling That's not very glamorous, is it? It's day in, day out, role, duty, system, action. Here's what you need to understand. You cannot walk with God's spirit. You cannot walk in his providence until you accept the fact that you need to embrace with all the relish of leisure all the duties and roles of your life. If you won't do that, because you can, so I won't say can't, if you won't do that, I don't think you can walk with God in any long term way. And you need to realize you're fighting your whole culture on this. People don't think that way. But we need to. And then the last one quickly is this. I'm um, oh, sorry, I don't have time for that right now. Um, t- to do what God has put in your heart to do, right? I said that at the beginning. Do what God has put in your heart or in your path to do. But here's, what, here's the, a really quick point on this, and I, I, I think it's worth a minute or two. One of the things that frustrates a lot—frustrates me a lot. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to use vulgar words. Um, that frustrates me a lot is that, that all, how all the leadership books and Disney movies and stuff are all about your vision and your dream. And I feel like a lot of people are living under sort of like the subtle anxiety that your dream isn't big enough, like you don't have a dream. Right? I mean, in the movie Tangled, I mean, every man in the whole Thieves Guild has a dream. Latent though it is. Right? But here, here's what we, we need to recognize um, you don't need one. You don't need a vision, and you don't need a dream. If you don't, if you don't know how you're gonna lead some group of people you don't know about to drill every well in Africa that will ever be needed, that's okay. Okay. If if you don't know how you're gonna fix the financial system in America, if you don't know yet, um, you know how how you're gonna do whatever, create the first flying car, um, so that everybody can be better, or feed the world, or create the first two cent aquaponic system that can feed thousands. Listen, that's okay. Because here's what you need to know. We need to get back to something that's just basically part of reality, but that doesn't sell books. In order for anything good to get done in this world, most of us are going to have to be followers. (laughs) I mean, and there will be 90 more books published this year on leadership and how you should lead everything in the world. And therefore, you should follow nobody. And you know what that does? That is just gimmicky crap that makes nothing get done. That's what that is. And I'm not saying you should follow me mindlessly. That's not my point. My point is, is that when we choose to do what God has put in our heart to do or put in front of us to do, oftentimes it's—God has put somebody inspiring in our life or something in our life, and has said, put your hand to that, because it's going to take many of you, right? In chapter 4, there's this—there's this vision that Zechariah gets where there's these seven lamps, and there's this bowl that feeds into them, and there's these trees that feed into them. That is, probably—interpretations are questionable— Joshua and Zechariah, God is filling them with the oil of his power. That's feeding into others. That's feeding into others. And people are going to get together and help each other and work together to accomplish something great. When the people see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand, they're going to cheer and they're going to work. And so everyone will then build the temple together. The question of what's in your heart to do or what's before you to do may not be some kind of cockamamie scheme that Jiminy Cricket would approve of. Right? Or the latest— Times bestseller, leadership writer. It might just be who or what will you put your hand to with others? That's what it has to be for 75 plus percent of us. And if we won't be humble enough to recognize that, we'll never accomplish anything. But if we recognize that God does things by his spirit, and if we recognize that that requires us to engage in prayer and worship, to recognize that, To test our own truthfulness by obedience To accept the ordinary And to do what's in our heart to do Especially when that means following Something worthwhile That's spiritually, morally true and beautiful Then at some point We're going to get to these places Where we're going to put capstones down And everybody's going to cheer God made this happen That can happen in this church That can happen in your life In your family It can happen in lots of different venues but it requires believing that God the things by his spirit and that it's not your tactics, but his providence and spiritual goodness that gets us there. Let's pray. Father, thanks um, for the patience of these folks. I pray that they um, will walk out feeling like they got something helpful. I pray, Lord, that the book of Zechariah would encourage us that we would remember this verse in chapter six for a very long time. And that we would start to live like people who um, who feel like we know that. Amen. When I-